is Our American Stories, and now it's time for a segment by Jesse. And you never know what you're going to get when Jesse does it. And this one's just called More Cowbell. We're high up in the Swiss Alps, and that sound that you're hearing is a herd of cows wearing cowbells. The cowbell was originally intended to make livestock easier to locate if they wandered off. Different bells have different specific sounds to identify important characteristics of the animal, such as age, sex, and specific herd identification. It is difficult to pinpoint when exactly the use of cowbells began, but the earliest examples of truly recognizable cowbells date back to the Iron Age. Just as soon as they were made, cowbells were used for music in sub-Saharan Africa. Although cowbells first appeared in American hillbilly music in the 1920s, they've also been used as an instrument in more recent popular music. The intro and ending to the 1958 track Heartbeat by the American artist Buddy Holly, a USA minor hit which reached number 82 in the Billboard Hot 100, is quite possibly the first use of the cowbell in pop music. Heartbeat, why do you miss my baby kisses me Even Jimi Hendrix used a little cowbell in Stone Free And who could forget the cowbell in Lowrider? God, this is really a good song. All my friends know the Lowrider. The Lowrider is a little higher. But arguably, the most famous cowbell of them all can be found through the entire track of Blue Oyster Cult's Don't Fear the Reaper. Released as a single, it was their biggest hit, charting at number 12 in 1976. Now, you probably know where I'm heading with this. To the pinnacle of cowbell fame in modern history. On April 8th of 2000, the comedy sketch known as More Cowbell aired on Saturday Night Live featuring Will Ferrell and Christopher Walken. After a series of staggering defeats, Blue Oyster Cult assembled in the recording studio in late 1976 for a session with fame producer Bruce Dickinson. And luckily for us, the cameras were rolling. Um, Bruce, could you come in here for a second, please? That, that was going to be a great track. Guys, what's the deal? Uh, are, are you sure that was sounding okay? I'll be honest, fellas, it was sounding great, but I could have used a little more cowbell. <laughs> this is one of the best SNL sketches of all time. Will Ferrell's acting was so over the top 
that Christopher Walken, Jimmy Fallon, Horatio Sands, and Chris Kattan were all trying desperately to hide their laughter on stage with very little success. I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell. Thank you, Bruce. We asked Blue Oyster Cult's drummer, Albert Bouchard, who is now a music teacher in New York City, how the cowbell made it into Don't Fear the Reaper. Ironically, it was similar to what happened in the skit, okay? It was, we had put a whole bunch of uh, overdubs on the, on the song, and one of them was um, uh, Randy Brecker. Put a, the, he put a flugelhorn part on it, or a trumpet or something, in the, in the middle part, the... That part. So, uh, and we didn't like it. Nobody, nobody in the group liked it, you know. And so, uh, erase that track. So I said, "Hey, I want to do, I want to do a triangle in that part. That's what I want. I really, I hear a triangle in my head." And they're like, and the the uh, one of the producers. There was three. There was Sandy Perlman, Murray Krugman, and David Lucas. David Lucas was a jingle producer, and he produced. Uh, a lot of AT&T, reach out, reach out and touch someone, or uh, it's the Pepsi generation. I don't know if you, you're too young. But anyway, these were big uh, uh, ads back, and uh, he was a madman. So uh, he said, uh, okay, you can put the triangle on it, but try a cowbell. I just want to hear a cowbell. And I said, why? You think that, it, is the tempo not steady enough? And he goes, no, don't. The tempo is fine. It's, I just want to hear that sound. I said, okay. So I play it, and I'm like, nah, it's not working. And he's like, oh, well, put some tape around it. So I put some tape around it. And he's like, he's like, yeah, yeah, that's it. I said, I don't know. Let me try a, beat, a beater. So I used like a timpani mallet. And, and everybody's like, yes, that's it. That's it. So it's funny that, uh, you know, that Will Ferrell, because he wrote the skit, and it's funny that he even noticed it because it was mixed very low. You don't even really notice it in the track, you know. But the last time I checked, we don't have a whole lot of songs that feature the cowbell. I gotta have more cowbell, baby. More Cowbell has its own Wikipedia page, remixes, tributes, and endless reenactments. It also has its very own app. I could have used a little more cowbell. If you go to Amazon right now, you can actually find cowbells with more cowbell printed on them. There's more cowbell shirts. Stickers, magnets, posters, beer cozies, coffee cups, hoodies, infant clothing, license plate frames, cell phone covers, pet clothing, wall murals, keychains, tote bags, cake decorations, mouse pads. I even found a more cowbell frisbee. And that's just on Amazon. Want some women's underwear for your wife with more cowbell printed on it? More cowbell! They've got that too. Do you want an SNL Christopher Walken more cowbell duvet cover? Those are available too. And I don't even know what a duvet is. More cowbell pillows. More cowbell clocks. You get the picture. This humble little instrument has made quite an impact on American culture. Pretty impressive for a piece of metal that was originally intended to help keep track of livestock. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell.
Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we talk about everything here on this show, from the arts to music to sports and, of course, history. We love talking about history, but we also love talking to Heidi Mitchell at the Wall Street Journal because we love her regular feature there, The Burning Question. And this last burning question, what's the best way to take an afternoon nap, had us all puzzling. And Heidi, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Now, Heidi, begin begin with things simple. Are you a napper? Uh, so there are three types of people. There's those who can just fall asleep, like on a train standing up. There's people who, who like to take a nap and can take a nap. And then there's people like me who say there's just no scenario in which I could fall asleep during the day. <laughs> yeah, you're my wife. She can't ever fall asleep. I, my wife says I'm not a napper. I'm a narcoleptic. I can fall asleep. <laughs> I can just dead fall asleep anywhere when I'm tired. So I don't know yeah. that I'm a napper. I just I just fall asleep. So I fall in that first category. Tell us about who you talk to about this thing called napping, Heidi. So I talked to a guy called David Dingis, who is a professor at Penn at the Perlman School of Medicine. He's written a book on this stuff. He's a, a real expert, and he was really deep in the weeds. It was a great conversation. He has lots of um, thoughts on your chronobiological clock and 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 the medical aspects of napping um, and also coffee, which are one of our other favorite subjects at the Wall Street Journal. Um, so yeah, he had a lot, a lot to say. Um, he's a big advocate of naps, as we all should be, it turns out. And he said something about naps being either voluntary or involuntary. What's the difference between the two of those? And also, what did he have to say about sleep more generally? I mean, oh, do we need naps because we're not getting enough sleep? Or do we need naps so, in addition to the sleep we should already have? So there's a couple things. Is I mean, most of us in the, in the modern world, we tend to be sleep deprived. We're supposed to get, you know, it varies between 7 and 10 hours, depending on which doctor you ask. But most of us aren't building in the seven hours of sleep. That means getting into bed, you know, a half an hour before you go to sleep, right? So you get that full seven hours of sleep. Um, and most of us just don't have that kind of time. So we're, we're sleep deprived. We build up the sleep debt. We're tired. And so a nap can alleviate that. Even a short nap can alleviate that. So if you're super duper um, sleep deprived, you will, rather than taking off your clothes and getting into bed and, and building a nap into your day, you'll have what's called an involuntary nap and you'll just fall asleep at your desk or on the train or while driving your car, God forbid. Um, so, you know, you want to try and avoid sleep debt for sure. That's like the main thing. But then also there's this genetic component, which we can get to later, um, which is not well understood, but it appears as though we are programmed evolutionarily to want to nap kind of after lunch and at the height of the heat. Talk about that genetic component. Let's talk about that right now, Heidi. So the theory is that, you know, at the height of the day when, you know, most of civilization evolved around the equator where it's super hot during the day, the animals are not out there napping. So it's a safe time to go take a break. Um, so, so there seems to be this window after lunch, before dinner, there's a question of where exactly it falls, but where your, your biological, your evolutionary clock wants you to just chill out, which is sort of why at four o'clock we all need a cup of coffee, right? We get yep. tired or sugar, you know, we need something to boost us. So, you know, they're not totally sure why, but the thinking is that, yeah, during, for most of humanity, you know, those were safe hours to sleep and you couldn't hunt and you couldn't really forage. It was really hot. 
And so it was a good time to sleep. And then when it got dark, you went to sleep. And when it got light, you woke up. That makes complete sense. And any of us who spend time when we're on vacations, we've been to the beach all day. I mean, we, we know that that cycle kicks in hard yeah, at, exactly. at four o'clock. Hot, yeah. Hot, you fall asleep. And, and sometimes you wake up if you, if you were awoken by an alarm or you didn't get, you didn't catch up all of your sleep debt and fill your sleep tank all the way, um, you might feel a little bit groggy. And so a lot of people don't like that, which is why a lot of people choose not to nap because they don't feel great when they wake up. They feel like they're not a hundred percent. So this is where coffee comes in. Yep, but, yep. uh, but a lot of people will avoid a nap because they don't like that groggy feeling. They just don't feel like they can perform. Right. And so how exactly do we doze off? Cause this I thought was the most interesting part of the piece. I know, right? So fascinating. So it's very biological. So your muscles start to relax. So let's say you're, you're standing up on a train holding onto the bar in the middle there. So then your arms start to lose their, um, control and they relax and then your hands relax and then your eyelids go and then your neck goes, right? So then your head falls over and then you jerk up. Okay. So this is terrible because your brain does not go into um, a good deep sleep and you're just, it's almost like a disturbed night of sleep. You're just like falling and rising and falling and rising. You can imagine how it does kind of feel amazing though, that feeling of falling into a deep sleep when you're not supposed to. There's some, some like guilt, delicious guilt built into that, but it's not, it's not going to give you the replenish your sleep debt the way that a voluntary nap where you're laying down is going to, it's going to, it's not going to do that for you. Well, I love the part here where you say that triggers the part of your brain that feels you're falling. That's of course when the neck goes, which wakes you up. I mean, how many times yeah. are we woken up by the nap? We're almost involuntarily pushed into by our exhaustion. Or how about in a meeting? <laughs> That's even more exciting. That's the worst. <laughs> that Sunglass. is the worst. That is. So, so what's the best way, the, the very best way to take a nap? So it's funny because the way that we work now, I don't know what your office is like, but typically offices now are open plan. And even those that are fortunate enough to have an office, they tend to be glassy. So this is not a good way to take a nap because you, for, we're not sure why. I think it has to do with, you know, our animal instinct, but you need to be in a safe place. So he was talking actually about homeless people and how it's really so sad to see people sleeping on a park bench because it's not a safe environment to sleep in. And so they're probably not getting quality sleep. Um, and so we're a little bit in a zone all the time. Um, but so you want to be in a, obviously in a cool place because you sleep best when it's like in the sixties. Um, you know, ideally you want to be, you want to be prone because when you're laying down, um, your body can, the, all those muscles can relax and your head's not going to fall over and wake you up. And you want to be in a dark space that, you know, no one's watching you. So you feel safe. So a glassy office is not a great place. It used to be that, um, like being a madman or whatever, and, you know, you could just close the door, lay down on your couch and take a 15 minute nap and no, just say, you know, don't interrupt me for 15 minutes. And it was totally fine. That's kind of looked upon as lazy now. And it's not that way in all cultures. You know, in Japan, they're still okay with naps. The siesta is still a big thing in, in um, Spanish-speaking countries. Um, and the way that we know that taking a mid-afternoon nap is good um, is that places like um, China, when they industrialized, they forbade, um, they forbade the nap, and the productivity didn't go up. So there's, there's this, they call it a sleep-wake window that opens up in the afternoon, and you're, it's a harmonic gate in your circadian rhythm, and it just opens up. And, and so if you can find, uh, I don't know, a secret room in your office 
where you can shut and lock the door, set your phone alarm for like 15, 20 minutes. And I, I promise you, you will feel refreshed. Even if you don't totally fall asleep, you'll feel refreshed. You can have a cup of coffee after. Um, and then you'll, you should be a hundred percent. And have you seen these places, Heidi, at the airport now around American airports where you can like basically go in and take a nap? Have you seen? Yes, I've seen these pods, right? Yeah, the little pods, and they're trying to create that cool space where you can be prone, and it's dark, and it's you're by yourself. Japanese. And they're they're like in fifteen minute increments, which is really kind of all you need. Yep, isn't that amazing? I mean, you could just do fifteen minutes, and you can feel much better. Well, I love what Doctor Dingy said. He said, "Quote: Being awake is like carrying a bag on your back. The longer you're awake, the more bricks you add." He says, and when you take a nap, you remove some of those. Bricks. And by the way, Dr. Dingy's, that's the uh, professor you talked at the University of Pennsylvania's Perlman School of Medicine. His book is Sleep and Alertness, Chronobiological, Behavioral, and Medical Aspects of Napping. So he wrote a whole book on this. He wrote a whole book. Exactly. (laughs) Sitting at a bookstore near you, Heidi. Yeah, I'm sure. I think you have to buy it on Amazon used. I think it may be out of print. But he's written other books as well and lots of papers, but he's so into this subject and we talked for at least an hour. Um, but he was, we were asking, you know, is there a way that employers can, can help, uh, you know, their, their employees to have this built in? And he said, you know, employers are really all about their profits, their bottom line. And so, you know, I've seen it at, you've seen it at Google, you know, they have those pods. Yep. So some forward-thinking um, corporations do have that, but I do think there is still um, a stigma attached to taking a nap in the middle of the day. And if we can just somehow societally remove that stigma, we would have a much more productive society. We would be less hangry, grumpy, have nicer exchanges. Um, you know, work life would be better balanced. Um, and free coffee. Well, here at Our American Stories, the staff has free coffee and they can nap anytime, especially when we're doing the show. Heidi, thanks so much for joining <laughs> us as always. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. Go have your 15-minute nap after lunch. Oh, I will. And Heidi Mitchell, as always, the burning question from the Wall Street Journal. This is Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show and we particularly love to tell stories about music because we can't imagine doing the show without it and moreover we can't imagine life without music it's that moment where we all just shut up and either dance or listen and for a moment at least everyone in the room everyone in the room is on the same page and this next story well it's a rock and roll fantasy story about the band Boston and one particular dreamer. And by the way, the rock and roll band Boston sold over 75 million albums with classic hits like More Than a Feeling, Peace of Mind, Rock and Roll Band, Smokin', and Don't Look Back. Here's Greg Hengler with the story of a Home Depot employee and his favorite rock and roll band. 
When our favorite songs are played, we all do the same thing. We turn it up and we sing along. But the idea of living a rock and roll fantasy and being the lead singer in your favorite band is only played out on the big screen and on television, right? For everyone who ever dreamed of being a rock star, meet Tommy DiCarlo. He sings every night to tens of thousands of screaming fans, but only months before his gig as the lead singer of the legendary rock band Boston, 42-year-old Tommy wore the orange apron and worked on the floor at Home Depot in Charlotte, North Carolina, where his singing was confined to the shower and karaoke bars. Here's DiCarlo. I remember doing karaoke at a bowling alley. There was maybe 30 or 40 people. That, that Most of them were bowling. They weren't even listening to karaoke. So how did Tommy's life go from this well, let us know if we can help you, okay? to this Like most kids who came of age in the late 70s, Tommy DiCarlo was struck by Boston in the summer of 76 when the band released the momentous debut album, which perfectly packaged progressive rock with melodic pop. Back when I was around 12 or 13, a friend of mine bought the debut and lent it to me, and I never gave it back, DiCarlo says. I fell in love with the music, and especially Brad Delp's vocals. Boston never toured as much as its 70s counterparts. So DiCarlo didn't get to see Boston until the mid-90s. My first show, he says, I was able to meet Brad Delp. I wasn't among 30 or 40 people at a meet and greet. But after the show, I hung around by the buses and yelled Brad's name. And we talked for a minute. I'm really thankful I got to meet him. You got to tell him how much he loved Boston. But he was so wrapped up in the moment, he didn't even remember to have Delp sign the CD he was holding in his hand. Here's Tommy describing what life was like before living out his rock and roll fantasy. Um, pretty average. I uh, worked a 40-hour week job at the Home Depot, and, and still am. I'm on a leave of absence there right now. DiCarlo's gig began with an unfortunate incident back on March 9th, 2007, when Boston's lead singer Brad Delp took his own life at age 55, leaving a note clipped to his shirt that said, I am a lonely soul. The band posted on its website, We've just lost the nicest guy in rock and roll. Here's DiCarlo. A lot of the fans, including myself, felt terrible about that. You know, it was, it was, it was a pretty rough time for, for a lot of folks. And um, I decided to go ahead and uh, write a tribute song in memory of Brad. And it was a very short piece, just a couple of minutes long. But I didn't really know how to go about sharing that with the other fans, which is what I really wanted to do. So... Uh, I went ahead and um, my daughter, my daughter Talia, told me, 
hey dad, why don't you try MySpace? <laughs> so I'm like, all right, I'll try it. Well, I got a message from another fan. That's the beauty of uh, MySpace and the, the friends you could make through the, uh, through the MySpace uh, page. Um, a, uh, a Boston fan had uh, sent me an email saying, I love your tribute song. Uh, would you consider sending it to the band? I have a, an old email address. And I'm like, uh, okay, sure, I'll, I'll try it. It's funny because uh, back when I was a young teenager, I had a lot of folks, uh, a lot of friends would tell me that I had a very similar voice to the lead singer of Boston. They didn't know his name was Brad Delt back then, but, and I says, yeah, you know, uh, thanks, that was a great compliment. And over the years, uh, I would sing a lot of the Boston music and still get those same compliments. So when that person sent me that email and told me, why don't you try sending your stuff over to, to, to the Boston camp, I was like, ah, you know, may maybe. Here's that cover of Peace of Mind DiCarlo posted on MySpace. Tommy's cover eventually reached the founder of the band, MIT mastermind and guitar geek, Tom Scholes. Here's Scholes with the story. Actually, through my wife, Kim, uh, I, I was walking through the uh, kitchen and she was listening to something on her uh, computer that was uh, up on the internet. Um, and I was, uh, and she said, uh, what do you think of this? And I said, well, um, I've never heard that uh, recording of Brad before, what show is that from? And she said, it's not Brad. And I said, uh, oh yes, that's Brad. And she said, no, this is not Brad. And uh, I didn't realize till I put it up on um, some big speakers and listened to the background music that it was in fact not Boston. Um, and it was uh, some sort of a karaoke track. And then I realized this wasn't Brad, but it sounded just exactly like him, and I, I know every nuance of Brad's voice, worked with him for 35 years. So I was, uh, I was shocked, but yes, I did, the moment I heard that, start to think, all right, maybe there is another future for Boston. And uh, uh, we, uh, we proceeded uh, cautiously but quickly and um, invited him to Boston to uh, make an appearance with us on stage at a tribute show last summer for Brad. So what was it like for this fan of Boston to pick up the phone and hear it was Tom Scholes on the other end? I, I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. It was, uh, it's, it's almost hard to put into words, really. I just could not believe it. It was, it was, I was shocked and I was excited. It was, it was just an amazing, it was an amazing day, believe me. DiCarlo's wife of 21 years was his number one groupie and his two teenagers saw their dad as the real American Idol. For Tommy, it was tough to leave his job at Home Depot in Charlotte. He liked his co-workers and rather enjoyed helping people find hardware. And he doesn't rule out going back to it at some point. In terms of lifestyle, not much has changed. DiCarlo says, 
We live in the same house, and the best part of my day is my kids and wife. And I get a lot of support from the people at the store. For the time being, though, he's just enjoying the ride. You know, just like uh, what the Boston song, I'm just taking my time, just moving along. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Story. Get more at OurAmericanStories.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And we continue with Our American Stories, and we love to bring you wise voices from around this country who can share their wealth of life experience and just their wisdom with us. And in this country where fame is at a premium, my goodness, there are so many people that should be famous who aren't, and all kinds of people who are famous. My goodness, they shouldn't. And Frank Hanna is one of those voices. And by the way, Frank's father is someone I've known for a very long time, just to be honest and open. Frank's family is Lebanese, and Lebanese people, well, we just find each other. We're in Oxford, Mississippi, here doing this show. The Hanna family comes out of Atlanta. But we spring from a place called Lebanon in the Middle East and love this country and love all the things that America has afforded us. And Frank is a husband, a father, an investor in Atlanta, who we now get to hear from in the latest edition of our regular feature, Don't Be a Fool, with Frank Hanna. I actually learned accounting, and I had a teacher who allowed me to do independent study. So I learned accounting when I was in uh, high school and started keeping track of every penny. You know, income, I had my chart of accounts and that sort of thing when I was in high school, and, and... Continued that for most of my life. I don't, I don't track every penny anymore, but, but for a long time I tracked every penny that came in or, or went out. I was enough of a disruption that she would allow me to go learn things on my own while the rest of the class was doing stuff. So, uh, and there was another girl who was sort of in the same category and so she and I kind of learned accounting. I was bored, you know. I mean, I mean, I wasn't trying to be a disruption. I'm just, she could tell I was bored. And so, um, uh, actually, that's how I learned Latin because my high school didn't offer Latin. I don't know Latin well because teaching it to yourself is tough. But, you know, she'd get me a book and say, work through this book and uh, that's what I did. Now, that's, that's not a bad skill set to acquire either. As we go through life, learning how to teach yourself things is pretty important. You're not going to learn it all in school. Now, I I do think, you know, one of the things, I've been involved in education for the last 40 years. Help build schools and start schools. And while I'm on some boards of colleges or universities, I've been more involved with K-12 education. And I do think that 
Nurturing curiosity is one of the most important things we can do for children. And I also think that much of what happens in the classroom does not do that. Now, education is a difficult thing. When I, if I make a negative comment about it, it's not because I'm trying to hammer anyone involved in the process. I actually believe, so I'm involved in venture capital, which means I fund a lot of different kinds of businesses. I think the most difficult business in the world, if you had a ratio of complexity to dollar of revenue, that educating a child, a school is the most difficult business in the world. You have the hardest product in the world, which is a human mind and a human soul. You usually have a pretty difficult customer, which is their parent. Uh, and you have a fundamental economic model that doesn't really sustain itself. People don't tend to pay what it requires to do it well. You know, so we, we have to ta either tax them or with private schools, you know, rely on benefactors. Uh, because it's, it's just not an economic model. There are few companies out there who are providing you know, schools and making a little bit of a profit, but they're usually doing it through a charter, which is essentially a taxation of the populace. Um, so it's a, it's a difficult business. It's very, very hard, but I think we've got to continually get better at thinking about what we're trying to do in the classroom. Candidly, much of K-12 education, much of it, is babysitting, is daycare. Uh, and, and that's understand. I'm just stating that as a fact. It's not a criticism, but that's what it is. Because a lot of people, both parents are working, and they need a place for the kids to be. So uh, when you hear homeschoolers talk about how they can do all the work, you know, and teach their kids in two hours a day, uh, and then they're babysitting them the rest of the time, okay? But yeah, the, the actu actual academic formation probably is no more than two hours a day in a school, which means there's a lot of time for kids to get bored. One thing, and there's a, there's a, a lot of academic literature about class size. So for a while, the emphasis was you gotta have a, a lower student-teacher ratio. And, and there's actually been some pushback on that, saying, you know, that's not actually what's essential. And in fact, one of the things that is pointed to are the success of Catholic schools of 50 years ago where you'd put 50 kids in a basement in one classroom and the nun kept order and they learned. And, and there's some truth to that. But I do believe that the, for almost anything in life, the more custom made it can be, the better. So you may like pancakes, but I may like pancakes with strawberries, and you may like them with blueberries. Now, if we're going to say, well, we're not going to do it both ways, okay? So, so somebody makes the pancakes and they put blackberries on them. Well, now that's not really what you wanted. That's not really what I wanted, right? So custom, generally speaking, is better than uniform in terms of what we need. Uh, but custom is always more expensive. <laughs> so in anything. You want a custom car made, you want a custom suit, you want a custom meal, whatever it is. You want a custom education, it's going to be better, it's going to be more expensive. So that's the challenge. That's the challenge. What some homeschool parents feel, I think accurately, is I can tailor make this education for my child. But, but you got to figure, if you got 50 kids in the classroom, that's harder to 
custom make for any child than if you have 20 or if you have 10. So what have I done? One of the things we've emphasized with our schools is a low student-teacher ratio, but, but that's very expensive because you got to pay for more teachers, right? I mean, just the math of it is if you got 20 kids in a classroom or 50, at 20, your labor costs are two and a half times as much. So and that's a lot. And that's one reason some private schools are, are expensive. People look at the cost, but you know, you, teachers need a living wage to live on. So it gets very expensive. I am hopeful, and I think this is happening, that a hybrid of a human being in the classroom, but also with computerized education, can customize it. And that is happening. It is happening slower than I would have thought. I still remember that one of the first pieces of educational software for teaching reading, uh, I helped teach my daughter phonics 25 years ago. It was called Reader Rabbit. And she actually learned phonics and kind of learned to read when she was about three. And one would think that we, in 25 years, given what's happened in the computer age, we, we would have proceeded a little faster. There are things like Khan Academy, which are these little snippets of lessons, you know, that you can get about almost any subject in the world. Bill Gates has his kids watch Khan Academy tutorials. So I think some mixture of that and the person in the classroom is the way, and we've done that with the schools that, that we've been involved in, is try to, try to get that hybridization, because otherwise it's just massively expensive. And it's so expensive they can't really afford it. Because just think, if you're a parent, you go to work for a salary. But if you had a one-on-one -on -one teacher for your child, you'd be paying the person teaching your child basically what you're making at your job. So we can't do one-on-one, -on -one, which arguably is the way any of us learn things most effectively. There's literature that says sometimes when you're in a group, you can learn a little bit better. Sometimes there are benefits to that. But generally speaking, if I want a tennis lesson and I want to get good fast, I want it one-on-one. -on -one or skiing, or anything. One-on-one -on -one is more custom and I learn faster. If, if, if much of the one-on-one -on -one can be provided by the machine, well now we just, we just drop the cost. Huge, you know, so, so rather than a human being who we gotta pay all in as a teacher with benefits and everything, you're paying, you know, depending on where you are in the country, anywhere from total all-in of 50,000 to 80. Right? You got a piece of software that costs a license fee of $50 a year. I mean, that's, that's massive. But, but the computer doesn't have the empathy and the, uh, the, the, the computer can't do it all. And I don't know that we want that, um, especially when it comes to the, the nurturing part of educating young children. So I think you still, you, I, I would never want a, a, a future where kids for eight hours a day, all they do is communicate with machines and then, and then come home. But, uh, but I think we could do it more cost effectively. And you've been listening to Frank Hanna. And by the way, you can pick up his terrific book, What Your Money Means and How to Use It Well, at Amazon.com. And his latest book, A Graduate's Guide to Life. Three things they don't teach you in college that can make all the difference. That's a graduate's guide to life. Again, go to Amazon.com. And I think you know now why we choose to have Frank talk to you now and then. Because, my goodness, he's just talking about something we all know is true. And we all have kids or grandkids going into the school. And 
We know that it's part babysitting and part teaching. My dad was a public school teacher. Uh, that's what I knew, uh, superintendent of schools. This is not a slam on teachers. In fact, it's the most important job in the world, period. The question is, how do we do it? And how do we do it going into the future and do it well? And it's, I think, perhaps the biggest and most important discussion we can have in the country, except we're not having it. Frank Hanna, his wise words, and we're looking for yours too. You know, a wise person in your town, in your community, send him over our way or her to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and your stories, too. Send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org, and while you're at it, sign up for our free newsletter. Give us your email address, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. And now it's time for our Rule of Law series on how this thing called the Rule of Law silently shapes the world around us, without us even knowing about it. Our own Alex Cortez brings us today's story. My dad was an electrician, worked at the mills, and his car kind of always smelled like the mills, you know, because it sits down there for eight hours a day. And I was like, man, I don't want to do that. I want to work out in the woods. I want to be a game warden, a biologist or something. Something, anything else, this native of Longview, Washington, named Mike Bridges, was convinced. But... I listened to my dad, and I'm glad I did. He told me when I was 18, he said, hey, applications are open for this apprenticeship program. I'm not saying you have to do it, but just do me a favor and go take the test, see if you qualify, see where you rank. So I went through the process, and I made it. When I got the interview, I was going to the local community college there, and I only had a couple classes left to take to get my associate's degree. And the committee asked me when I could go to work. And I gave what I thought was the right answer, an honest answer, and I said, well, I'd like to finish things I start, and I'm in the middle of a quarter right now at college, so I guess when I get this quarter done, I could, I could start right after that. And unfortunately, that wasn't what they were, the answer they were looking to hear, and I got passed over, missed an opportunity. Work wasn't really busy then, so it took me three more interviews. I kept going back and trying to better my interview, and I got in on my fourth try. <laughs> so. I'm glad I did because I was able to work in different small businesses. I worked in cabinet business, a small cabinet shop where I did everything from cutting out the material to assembling it to installing cabinets in people's homes and businesses. And so I really, I don't know if I would have appreciated where I ended up as much working in the building trades as an electrician with the benefits and things that we have is if I would have got in right away. I'm a little bummed that I didn't get it right away because I'd have more money in my retirement now and other things, maybe be closer to retirement, but looking back on it, I don't think I would have appreciated it as much not working for some some of the different employers I work for that didn't have the same type of benefits that I have now. It's pretty amazing to go from living with your parents 
having a maybe a you know a car and being a young man and thinking okay I can do this I could probably move out someday and then all of a sudden getting into a real legitimate program like that and I think within a year of being in the apprenticeship I had a newer car more reliable car bought my first house got married <laughs> all those things that started happening because of my career path so I always just volunteered to help out my union whatever it was just because I wanted to give back because it, I just felt like what a great opportunity that I'd been given to get into the program and this is the group that's fighting in my best interest to make work opportunities for me and I just thought you know this is where I need to be people started just seeing that I was paying attention and maybe that I cared a, not just about what was going on in my life that I you know I cared about the union and, and the people in our union and so I'm guessing that's what it was because people just started asking me would you be interested in running for this board or would you be interested in being president so it's kind of a combination of, of things I guess and it wasn't much <laughs> I mean I, I don't think it was much I just think that sometimes it's just things happen and you get opportunities and you can either embrace them or or not <laughs> Mike was elected president of the Longview Kelso area building trades, IBEW, Local 48. I want those apprenticeship opportunities for my kids and their kids and everybody's kids in our area because they're, they're great opportunities. Where else can you earn a good living while you're going to school and not have any debt when you're done? I mean, it's just, I'm so thankful for that every day. I have friends that are my age, friends that are younger than me, older than me, that have so much student debt that it's in the 250 range, 250,000 range. It's in some cases more than their mortgage, <laughs> more than my mortgage. I'm just, it's just shocking to me that what young people these days are strapped to as far as having to go to college. And so anytime we can create more of these opportunities in, in apprenticeships or things we can do that maybe don't require a four-year degree or maybe a two-year certificate to get them into a facility where they can make a family wage job. These are truly $100,000 a year jobs, careers, if you work year-round. And if you like overtime and you like working 12-hour days or working Saturdays and Sundays if, if they're available, I know guys that make 150000 working those kind of hours. The whole country seems to be talking about apprenticeships right now, so the timing is right. They realize that we went too far the other way, telling every high school student that the only way that they can have a career is if they get a four-year degree. We don't speak against going to college. I think that's great. We have a lot of people that get into our program that went to college and got a four-year degree and they can't find a job, and they end up in our programs and they do great, and they end up being part of our system. So. I just think that it's kind of a wrong message to tell all of our youth that there's only one career path. I was just at one of my um, kids' conferences this week, and at the conference they asked my daughter where she was going to go to college, and it was interesting. Some of the teachers were more pushy than others. It didn't seem like they were hearing that message that there's other options out there. And when we come back, more of an electrician and accidental union leader named Mike Bridges. His story continues here on Our American Stories.
To hear more stories like this, follow us on Facebook and go to our website at ouramericannetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter so that we could send you our best stories every week. More of Our American Stories after the break. Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of electrician and accidental union leader Mike Bridges and his story. Let's pick up where we last left off. We are working with the school districts, and they're actually reaching out to us. How can we partner with you guys? They're trying to figure out how do we do this apprenticeship thing, and it's easy for us to talk about because the building trades have been doing apprenticeships for over 100 years, so uh, it's a second nature to us. We actually started a, a pre-apprenticeship partnership program with Longview School District this year to get these folks, as they get done with high school, they're going to end up with a recognized state credential where they can hand that to our apprenticeship program and if not get them direct entry, get them certainly a quicker pathway into our programs. But to do that, to make that happen, especially to get the folks from the local communities working on local projects where they're not having to travel three or four hours. We need these opportunities to be local. So that's kind of the missing piece that's been missing for a while. The old Reynolds uh, aluminum smelter site. That site used to have, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 800 to 1,000 employees. So when, when Reynolds shut down, that was a really big hit to our community. I think having a job and something to focus on, is it's a, it's a sense of pride. And I know the few times that I've been laid off in the trade, you go through that couple weeks of like, Okay, I'm, I'm off. I have I, got, I can catch up on some stuff around the house. And you do that, and then it's like, it's I don't want to say depression, but it seems kind of like that. You know, you want it. Most of us want to be doing something. We want to be able to measure what we've accomplished during the day, and that's what kind of drives I think most people. But once those opportunities aren't there, and you're tried, and you keep getting kicked back, and I think everybody has their limits, and some people turn to substance abuse or other things to help them deal with the, the lack of opportunities. And we see that on a daily basis in our community. And it's, it's sad. I've seen it change in my lifetime. And you know, there's always been that element, but I've seen it got worse. And it's directly tied to my opinion, the, the numbers don't lie. When you look at the graphs of the decline in these factories shutting down or, or laying off folks. So we're just, waiting for our our turn, I guess, for things to boom. The thing is, Longview just doesn't have to wait to see if anything happens to them. There's an employer named Lighthouse Resources that really wants to come to them. Their Millennium Bolt Terminal Project hopes to improve one of Longview's ports so they would be able to ship coal from the states of Wyoming and Montana to countries across the Pacific Ocean that are hungry for it, like Japan and South Korea. You're talking almost a three-year project, probably between 1,000 and 2,000 building trades jobs easily. There's 150 permanent jobs for the facility. You know, you're probably looking at a $1 billion project, and that's a big private investment into a community that 
could really benefit from that. Mike said could because the project is being held up by the state government because it has to do with coal, what some call a dirty energy source because when it's burned to make electricity, it emits carbon dioxide and that can increase global warming. The governor's office shouldn't be picking winners and losers based on what the commodity is that they'd like to ship or the industry that they want to bring to our community. The plan all along, obviously, was to stall this thing out. Lighthouse Resources applied for its permits back in February of 2012. It took Washington State's Department of Ecology five whole years to complete its EIS, Environmental Impact Statement, on the project. They're supposed to follow a process and have an answer at the end, and that's all we've ever asked for with Millennium. Um, in any project that comes to our area, you know, let's have a fair, predictable process. When you're waiting one year, then two years, then three years, and four years, and finally over five years just for the government to get back to you, to tell you what their ruling, their law is about something, you don't have a rule of law, you have a rule of the unknown. And none of us like swimming in unknown waters when it comes to the government. Especially when you're a business that's already risking a billion dollars on a project. More risk is the last thing you need. I know there's other businesses and projects that are sitting out waiting to see how this thing plays out. We're going to continue to see these projects. One of the things we worry about is depending on how these things shake out, will that slow down? Will they quit looking at the West Coast? That's some of the fears that, that we have. In April of 2017, the Department of Ecology's much-delayed report came out, and it essentially concluded that the project was fine. But five more months later, Maya Bellin, the head of the Department of Ecology, decided to deny their water quality permit anyway, illegally. She accounted for the environmental impact of the trains that would bring the coal to the port, even though federal law prohibits them from looking at trains. And she accounted for the carbon emissions of the coal, even though the Federal Clean Water Act prohibits them from considering this too. And even though her own department's report found that this Wyoming and Montana coal is cleaner than those of the other countries that Japan and South Korea is currently buying them from, and therefore, this coal would actually help the environment. The EIS actually stated in the appendix that because of the better mining practices, along with the different quality of coal that comes from the Powder River, would actually be a little bit of a reduction in global CO2 emissions. So that was kind of interesting to me that not, not that it's just a neutral, it's actually a, a benefit. But nobody's talking about that because they buried it back in the appendix. It's tough. It's Washington's made a made it kind of a tough um, environment currently to try to do business. There's a lot. There's a lot of people that feel that way on, on both sides of the political aisle. 
from 12 different labor unions who are fighting for this project to happen alongside local Chamber of Commerces to Montana's Attorney General Tim Fox, who doesn't take political or economic stance, only a legal one, that the state of Washington blocking coal from his state and Wyoming violates the United States Constitution and its Commerce Clause. Think about the way that our country evolved with the 13 original colonies. They were in competition with one another for commerce, for immigrants, and it was not uncommon for states to basically take advantage of another state's situation by, say, barring the importation of a commodity from the other state in favor of those that maybe grew that commodity in their own state. And the framers were well aware of that and understood that if the states were allowed to do that when the country was eventually established, that it would create chaos, it would be unfair, and it could really undermine this experiment, if you will, that they were trying to do with our republic. And thank goodness they had that kind of foresight and framed the Constitution the way they did so that states like Washington in the year 2018 cannot do what they're trying to do. My new role, it's not a permanent role, but I do enjoy what I do because I got into this to try to make a difference in our community. But I really do miss being out in the field, being able to see something get done at the end of the day. The benefit of uh, being able to go back and say, this is, this is, look at what you did before you walk off the site and say, look, this is what I did, or, or turning the switch on and seeing the lights or the, the motor start up or whatever it is that you're working on is a pretty satisfying thing to have. Uh, I wish I could do that every day in the job I do now because it's just tough. You might work on something for six months and not see a change because there's all these different pieces that go with it. And then the victories, I guess, in, in my line of work now are harder to measure. <laughs> and uh, so we celebrate when we do get anything. And if, um, you know, if we do get a, a win with Millennium, we will be celebrating for sure. And great job as always, Alex. And that's another great installment of our Rule of Law series. And here, there's just unlawfulness. You have 12 unions hoping to build this port facility and all the jobs that come with all those unions supporting it. We have the Chamber of Commerce and unions supporting something, folks. How often does that happen? And those are the kind of stories we do here on Our American Stories. The ones where, well, no one else is covering them. And if you have a story like this in your community or something in the government that makes no sense, that has no relationship to the law, just sheer power or ideology, write to us at ouramericannetwork.org. Union leader Mike Bridges' story, Longview, Washington's story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and one of our favorite subjects is work, what we do, how we got there, and why, and the intersection of commerce, too, because we spend a lot of our times working or scheming or trying to figure out how to get a product to market or how to come up with something new, and sometimes we just do it on general principle, just for fun. And today we're talking to a man with a dream job for anyone who loves the outdoors or animals, and we first learned of him in a Wall Street Journal article by Harriet Torrey, which began with these words. The first time the bears steal human food, they are relocated 30 miles away. The second time, it's 60 miles. And the third time, it's 100. After that, they become consumer product consultants. And by the way, the headline of that article was, Nice Trash Can, Let's See What the Bears Think. And, well, we're joined by Randy Gravatt, a man with many jobs at the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center in West Yellowstone, Montana, God's country, if ever there is, in this great country, among them running the Bear Safety Product Testing Division. And, Randy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hey, Randy, just a bit about yourself first, your parents, uh, where you grew up, and some of your passions as a young guy. Sure. I grew up in uh, northeast Pennsylvania in the Poconos, but uh, 21 years ago, uh, came out to Yellowstone, visited, and fell in love with the place, and uh, ended up moving here. I actually live in Idaho, but work in Montana. I'm only 10 miles away from, from the uh, Montana border. Yep. And, and yes, uh, I do have a dream job, um, and, and love my job. I've been here at the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center 18 years. You know, what people don't know and so often forget in this great country is you get out of Philadelphia, and you go through the rest of Pennsylvania, and the Poconos, no, it's not Yellowstone, but my goodness, hunting, fishing, and plenty of bears, right? Yes, very much so. Pennsylvania is one of the leading states with black bears. No grizzlies, but lots of black bears. And they're no friend when you're, when you're lost in the woods, are they? Sure, sure. You know, when you surprise a bear, whether it's a black bear or a grizzly, uh, on, on a food source or a mom and her cubs, they can be uh, very defensive. Yeah, news alert while hiking. Don't disturb the bear. This is exactly. pretty simple. And uh, so your, your, your parents, tell us a little bit about your, your, their life and a little bit about what they instilled in you, values, your, you know, what you care about, uh, Randy. Sure, sure. Sadly, my dad's not, no longer with us, but my dad was a drill instructor in, in the Marines, so I drew up, uh, grew up with a pretty stern uh, background there. Uh, my mom's still alive. She's down in Florida enjoying the warm weather. And by the way, we were 39 below zero uh, here in West Yellowstone, Montana this morning, so still trying to warm up. Yeah, and you're not getting mom to visit anytime soon, are you? Oh, no, not when she lives in Florida. Now, tell me this. As, you, as you're, you're doing different jobs along the way, ultimately all of it's to get connected to that great landscape, I can only assume. Yes, very much so. I, I am an avid hunter, hiker, fly fisherman, and it's all right in my backyard here. And tell folks about about Yellowstone and and the folks uh, who are listening who've never been, uh, what they're missing, uh, what they should come and see, and when is a particularly good time to come for those who might be inclined to not want to fight the lines or the or the or the traffic or the population that swells. Talk a bit about Yellowstone. Yeah, well, Yellowstone is very very big. It's two point two million acres. Uh, it is only open to vehicle traffic right around the end of April. Uh, right to around the 1st of November, and that's because of the depth of snow that we get. But um, to me, the best time to come is either the end of May or the first two weeks of June. Um, after that, you know, with the kids getting out of school, it does get 
uh, very crowded, and it seems to take away the, you know, the beauty of it when there's so many vehicles and so many people. But uh, I've spent a many a day in Yellowstone Park in the month of May and have seen 10 bears in, in one day. You do have to be prepared for inclement weather. Um, the park can, you know, elevation-wise can go very, very high, um, and, and so it can snow at any time of the year. Uh, snow has been recorded every month of the year, July, August, um, so pretty crazy. But in the wintertime, definitely a special time to come. You can either go in on a snowmobile or what's called a snow coach, and you experience how the animals that are still in the park, because there is a lot of animals that, that migrate out of the park, but in the wintertime you have a much better appreciation for those animals that are trying to find a food source when it's, you know, 20, 30, 40 below zero and, and five, six feet of snow on the ground. You know, National Geographic recently did a full, full uh, subject and full issue on Yellowstone, and it, and it spent quite a bit of time on the bears and bear attacks. And I don't know if they were on the increase or just that there's more uh, human contact. Uh, but talk about, you know, the, 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 the nature of that uh, assault and what people can do to prevent it before we dig into this Wall Street Journal article on the other side. I mean, that's got to be the worst thing that can happen to you. But what are things you do to either prevent it? Can you, can you figure out where the bears are ahead of time? And then, B, when you see one, what do you do? What do you actually do? Sure, sure. So, so there's an estimated uh, population of 700 grizzlies in Yellowstone Park and an average of one bear attack uh, per year where there's uh, around 4 million visitors. So the chance of getting attacked is, is, is pretty slim, uh, better chance of getting struck by lightning. But if and when that encounter does happen, there's, there's a couple things that you need to do. Is, is, um, uh, before you, uh, you're leaving the trailhead, you want to um, uh, make some noise, you're walking with a group of people, perhaps. You hear the bear bells that people might wear on their shoes. The whole idea is that uh, grizzly bears in particular do not like to be surprised. And so if you're making noise, you're walking down a trail, um, more than likely you're not going to see a bear because you're going to scare that bear away. But let's say you see that bear at 200 yards, uh, mom and, and two cubs perhaps, a grizzly. And so you're going to talk in a low-com voice kind of let the bear know, hey, I'm a human, I'm not a, you know, an antelope, I'm not a deer, and, and you're going to start to, to obviously walk away, um, but not run. Running elicits a chase response, so you want to uh, return to the trailhead, return to your car. But if that bear does decide to charge you, hopefully you've remembered to have your pepper spray, your bear pepper spray, and you're going to have it on your hip where it's easily accessible that bear is charging at you. That bear can run 35 miles an hour. That's 42 feet per second. So you have to be ready. And, and yes, that bear is going to be very close, 10, 15 feet away, 20 feet away when you start to discharge that can. Um, and with a bear's sense of smell, smelling food up to 18 miles away, um, they, they are greatly affected by that bear pepper spray. And, and it basically renders them useless for a couple hours. They, um, uh, you know, their their eyes are watering, they're they're tearing, they're coughing, and uh, and then of course you're going the opposite way. But fortunately, not too many encounters. But yes, you need to be prepared. You need to look for fresh bear scat, fresh bear sign, and let those uh, bears know that you are out there hiking. Yeah, and that's so that is pretty extraordinary. Four million visitors, seven hundred grizzlies, and only one bear attack per year. But there there are probably multiple sightings. I would assume. Oh yeah, very much so. Yeah. It's it, it's a um, a, a, a personal, you know, uh, 
distance that you need to stay away from those bears, and whether it be a bison, 1,500-pound bison, have a, a personal space, just like a grizzly bear, just like a moose. And so if you get into that bear's personal space, then you're threatening that bear, and, and, and perhaps that bear is thinking that you are a threat to them, even, even though, you know, we don't want to have anything to do with them. And, and so, again, you need to, to let your presence be known to those bears. And, and no, people see, see bears all the time. What, what ends up happening is you got the camera in your hand. You want to get that great shot, so you just keep getting closer and closer. And before you know it, uh, whether it's mom and the cubs, uh, and they basically say, hey, that's, that's too close, and then she charges. Yeah, and by the way, don't get cl- too close to my wife in the morning either. I give her lots of space. When we come back, Randy Gravatt. The Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center, and he has a great job, a job that obviously he just loves, and it's running the bear safety product testing over at the Grizzly, Wolf, and Discovery Center. He lives in Idaho, works in the beautiful state of Montana, West Yellowstone. When we come back, more with Randy Gravatt. This is Our American Stories. between 2 and 500 pounds. Brown bears weigh between 300 and over 1,000 pounds. Black bears run away from you. Brown bears run at you. When attacked by a bear, simply lie still on the ground and cover your face and head with your hands. When the bear is finished batting you around and mauling you, contact the U.S. Forest Service. This is Our American Stories, and we pick up where we left off with Randy Gravatt, a man with many jobs at the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center in West Yellowstone, Montana, among them running the bear safety product testing. So before we dig into the testing, talk to the audience about the multiple types of bears that are out there. How many types are there that Americans can encounter? And what are they like, these different types? Because the bears are very different as categories, aren't they? Yeah, there's, um, you know, in, in North America, we have, the brown, we have the brown bear, which is also the grizzly bear, and then we have the black bear. The grizzly bears pretty much are only in both uh, in Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. And they're very intelligent animals. I, I think that needs to be stated. And they're also very food-driven. Talk about those two things. Sure. They're, they're very, very smart. They also have huge appetites, and that's what tends to get them into trouble where we may average 2,000 calories a day, a bear could average 5,000, and then, then that number even goes much, much higher right before hibernation. It could be as high as 20,000 calories a day so that they could build up those fat reserves before hibernating. And so where do the problems come between people and bears? I assume it's just the food. It is, it is. Um, when, when bears gain access to unsecured um, um, unnatural foods, whether it be dog food, whether it be the, the bird feeder, whether it be the garbage, uh, the dirty barbecue grill, um, those bears are going to take full advantage of that easier meal than going out in the woods and tearing apart a log and getting some ants and some, some, some grubs perhaps and, and some blueberries, huckleberries. Um, and so they're going to go the easy route every time. 
And the problem lies that, that when they become, you know, unafraid of people, they become around our houses, there's then uh, the potential for problems as in a, a bear attack to humans. And so in, in, in large measure, many of these problems are occurring in, I would, I would assume, the outlying suburbs that intersect with nature and intersect with the woods and even in, in traditional suburbia? Talk about that. Sure, sure. As we continue it to expand into, into bear country, it, it definitely is a big factor where more problems arise. Uh, where a bear once freely roamed through that meadow, through that field, through that woods, now there's a mall, now there's a housing development perhaps. And, and so it's definitely very, very tough for them. You know, on average, a female bear has a home range of around 50 miles, and a male uh, double that, if not even a little bit more. So they travel a great distance throughout the day, always searching for food. And why, didn't, why and how did the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center, where you work, become the place uh, to test bear safety products? Where, where and how did that happen, Randy? Sure, sure. Well, the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center opened in 1993, and we recently, in 2000, became a not-for-profit uh, wildlife park and educational facility. And we were approached by an organization called the IGBC, that stands for Interagency Grizzly Bear Committee. And it's made up of a bunch of members, whether it be Forest Service, Park Service, even Parks Canada, uh, a bunch of uh, great folks. And, and the idea is for them to um, sustain the bear population, to monitor the bear population. Well, with so many bears being put down that, that had gained access to that unnatural foods and the garbage and such, and that were being put down, um, they came up with an idea that uh, there would be a testing program. And with our eight grizzly bears, uh, we made the fit. And around 15 years ago, we were approached to see if, our, uh, if we would be willing to do it. And it's worked out very well. Um, so basically what we do is whether it's a manufacturer that produces a cooler, a polycart trash can, a dumpster, uh, they either ship the product here or they bring the product here, and then we put it into the bear's habitat. We do put the bear's favorite food inside of it, so that would be peanut butter, that would be fish, honey, um, and, and then it has to withstand 60 minutes of contact time. Most of the containers cannot uh, have a hole larger than an inch and a half. If it does, it is considered a fail. And then there is a, a, another factor with those polycart trash cans, those ones that you wheel out to the end of your driveway. A lot of times when they're uh, bear-resistant, uh, you and I would take our finger and put it into a latch mechanism to release that lid. Well, that latch system has to work um, when it's done being tested for that 60 minutes. Walk us through a product testing session and what happens. And I love the, uh, I love Kabuk, or is it Kabuk? The destroy. Kobach, the destroyer, is your most skilled testing bear. Talk about him or her, and then talk about what this product testing session looks like. And do you have video of this? Because we'd love to see it. Sure, sure. No, I, I definitely have video of it. Um, yeah, Kobach uh, is from Delta Junction, Alaska. Kobach is actually a river uh, in Delta Junction, Alaska. That's how he got his name. But, yeah, he's been here for um, 18 years and he's uh, earned that uh, nickname as Kobuk the Destroyer because he seems to be able to get in the most products. You and I, Lee, we can take our hands, we can, at our wrist, we can turn our hands side to side. Well, bear cannot do that. Um, and, and, and some of these trash cans that are being tested, it's ones where you and I would take our fingers and reach up and, and release a latch mechanism. Well, grizzly bears with huge front claws somehow, some way, 
Kobuk has learned to, to literally twist his wrist a little bit, twist his body, and get those claws up in there and, and release that mechanism. Um, yeah, most, most manufacturers fear Kobuk the Destroyer, but uh, many of our other bears are, are very uh, adept at getting into, a, into the products because, again, there's that special food reward. We test anywhere from 40 to 80 products a year, all summer long is our testing season. And um, uh, so when there is no bears in the habitat, uh, I will take a product, I walk it into the habitat, and this is an acre-and-a-half habitat with two ponds with live fish. We take that product, so we'll talk about a cooler. That cooler is going to have padlocks. It has to have padlocks. They're going to rip the rubber latches off right away. So we put the food in, put the, the locks on, put it out there. We leave the habitat before the bears come out. Every product tested is uh, filmed for documentation. But those bears come out of what we call bear den. They come out, and, and with their sense of smell and their vision, they're, they're able to see that cooler. They're walking up to it. They are uh, biting at it. They're chewing at it. They're rolling it around. They're even flipping it up in the air, perhaps to land on a rock, to maybe break the lock open, to break the latch system, perhaps. Uh, they're, they're super, super smart, and, and yes, through all these years, because a bear can live up to 30 years long, and, and so some of our bears are very old, and, and through these 15 years of testing, they've learned you know, better, better ways to get in each, each and every time. Yeah, they've learned some tricks as they get older. They do, they do, again, because of that food reward. Yep. So here's an example, Lee. So let's say we had 10 coolers in a row, and every one of those coolers passed the test. The bears were not able to gain access. Well, the chance of a bear trying to get in that 11th cooler uh, is pretty slim because the first 10, they were not able to get in. So you know the term, we throw them a bone. So what we'll do is we'll take a cooler, put that same amount of food inside, but maybe uh, just use zip ties versus padlocks. Bears come out, they get in, they get a food reward, and, and it just, uh, you know, it, it, it excites them all over again to, to keep uh, testing the products. And the hope here, I would assume, is that the, the more uh, bears have no success with human coolers and garbage cans, uh, the better off we all are because there are fewer encounters because the bears don't get that, that beautiful food reward. Exactly. That's the ultimate goal is that it benefits the bears out in the wild. If a bear does not get a food reward from our, our house, our neighborhood, they're going to stay in the woods where they belong. And if I may use an example, if we have the Jones and we have um, the Smiths, and the Jones are very, very clean, uh, no bird feeder, no dog food, the barbecue grill, uh, but then the, the neighbors are not so clean, and uh, uh, the uh, mom and two cubs are frequenting the area. Um, it's 11 o'clock at night, and the, the clean family, they, they, somebody forgot something in their vehicle perhaps, they walk outside, it's dark, it's midnight, it's 11 o'clock, and they surprise mom and the cubs. Well, uh, they end up getting mauled where, where here they were the ones that, that were being clean and, and you know, careful with their food when their neighbors made the mistake. And that's why we all need to be on that same page and not allow those bears uh, near our homes. Yeah, but it only takes one or two of us to ruin, the, ruin it life for the bears and for ourselves. So uh, well, well taken, point well taken. How can our listeners, Randy, visit and support your Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center? Talk about that. Sure. Um, again, we're not-for-profit. We are open every day of the year. Uh, obviously, we have a website, uh, grizzlyandwolfdiscovery.org, 
and then we do have what's called a uh, the webcam for our wolves, a webcam for our bears, so people can view them uh, limited hours in the winter time, and, and that does bring up something interesting as far as us being 39 below zero this morning. Our bears here at the center, even though we don't do the testing in the wintertime, um, our bears uh, do not hibernate because of a constant food supply. So the same is true for any bear in the wild, whether it be Florida, whether it be Texas, Minnesota. If bears are able to obtain a food source, and whether it be warmer temperatures, they're going to not hibernate and or hibernate for a shorter period of time. Well, Randy, we appreciate you joining us. And we're talking to Randy Gravett, the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center. And, Randy, we'd love to visit you when we go out. Uh, we're out in Jackson. We have an affiliate there, and we'd love to come visit when we get the chance. And thanks so much for joining us. Excellent. Thank you. Sounds good. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And you can catch all the work we do at OurAmericanNetwork.org. And if you've got stories like this, and we just consider these great American stories, post them at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Thank you.